0: Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Roz Taylor. On today's show, we're talking about the Israel-Hamas war. How much sway do the US and UK really have? And who do we trust to tell us about what's happening? It's terrifying, but we need to take the prospect of a Trump second term seriously. What would it be like? And is Europe ready? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, a group of MEPs were sent to Disneyland after their train was redirected. What unexpected adventures have the panel been on? Let's meet that panel. Rachel Cunliffe is Associate Political Editor at The New Statesman. Hello, Rachel. Hello. By the time many listeners hear this podcast, we'll know the result of the Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth by-elections. You've been talking to people in Mid-Beds, haven't you? What did they say?
1: It was really interesting. Uh, I went up and joined the Liberal Democrats and the Labour team canvassing, tried to speak to the Conservative candidate, was told he didn't have time. Real anger on the doorstep about Nadine Doris specifically, the Conservative MP who's standing down, uh, but also about the fact that they just feel that they've been taken for granted. This is a constituency that's been Conservative for nearly 100 years. Most of the people that we we w- we talked to said that they'd never been canvassed before. They would never had this much attention. i got some great quotes about Nadine Doris. Uh, as much use as a chocolate fireplace was my favourite. One guy said he was looking forward to the opportunity to stick two fingers up really the, the story of that by-election obviously we will have the results by the time people are listening to this, is it's one of the few genuine three-way races in, in, in the UK and you've got a majority of over 24,000 that Labour and the Lib Dems are trying to overturn and the split of that could be really interesting and could tell us a lot about opportunities for tactical voting or whether those uh, the talk of tactical voting is in fact a, a, a pipe dream when it comes to the the general election. So it's a a really interesting one to watch, I think. Uh, And I also got to see where Nadine Doris used to hold her constituency surgeries, uh, but now it's a dance studio. Because she doesn't hold them anymore. She does not, or she hasn't for for some time. (laughs) Gavin Esler is a former Newsnight
0: presenter and author of Britain is Better Than This. Hello, Gavin. Hello. MI5 has been warning us about the scale of Chinese espionage in the UK. What are the Chinese trying to find out?
2: Uh, everything apparently. Uh, Ken McCallum, who's the, the director of MI5, says it's a sustained campaign on a pretty epic scale and 20,000 people have been approached. Uh, I don't know any of the details, but I do know quite a good story about a friend of mine who's an academic who was teaching a, a class in a university. And I won't say any details about it, but he's got quite a few Chinese students. And he noticed that there was a new person who came into the class, a young woman, and he asked something about why, you, she, why was she there? And she said, oh, she just was quite interested in this kind of subject and uh, maybe she could sit in. So she sat in and he thought it was a bit funny. So he went to his professor afterwards and uh, mentioned it to uh, to the head of department, rather, who said, oh, yeah, it's prob- probably a spy. And he wasn't joking. And uh, my friend said, "Ah, that possibly explains why none of the students will talk about anything personal uh, in, in the class or in public or uh, when, when asked to do certain things, they keep very strictly to, uh, to business. So maybe they're not just spying on high tech, which is uh, what the MI5 says and research establishments and so on, but they may also be spying on Chinese students in the United Kingdom.
0: Our guest this week is associate professor in global politics, writer for The Atlantic and host of the podcast Power Corrupts. Brian Klass, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Brian, what's the latest in the saga of the next House of Representatives speaker? Because the Trump ally Jim Jordan has had a setback, hasn't he?
3: He has indeed. So uh, basically to recap, the fringe right in the Republican Party deposed Kevin McCarthy, who had a very difficult ride getting to become speaker in the first place and sort of cut deals with the far right. And then they turned on him. And now the candidate that's been put forward is Jim Jordan, who is an extremely far right person, sort of the insurrectionist in chief, as it were, within the Republican caucus, the person who was one of the main architects trying to overthrow the 2020 election in coordination with the Trump administration, Uh, a man who has never passed a bill. Uh, in his entire time in Congress to be in charge of the House, and also uh, a person who strongly favors uh, national abortion ban and has authored legislation to that extent. Now, he did not get past the initial hurdle. And so his candidacy looks like it might be dead in the water. But you never say never with, uh, with crazy developments in the modern Republican Party. So we'll have to wait and see.
0: Do we have a sense of how long this is going to take?
3: No, we don't. I mean, basically you need to have, there's there were something like 20 holdouts uh, who voted against Jordan within the Republican caucus. Of course, the Democrats all voted against him. I don't think he's going to convert many of those people. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it's not a particularly good time for the House of Representatives to not have a leader and not be able to conduct business. So this was a self-inflicted wound and it's, you know, sort of lending itself to that moniker of the chaos caucus and suggesting that Republicans are very good at blocking things and very bad at governing.
0: As we record this, Joe Biden is visiting Israel. He was hoping to meet Arab leaders as well as the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. But the summit in Jordan was cancelled at the last minute. Meanwhile, hundreds of people are reported to have died in a strike on a Gaza hospital and both sides are blaming the other for it. Biden has accepted Israel's version of events, which is that a Hamas rocket failed to launch properly. Gavin, in public, Biden's support for Israel's right to defend itself has been unwavering. But Israel's decision to cut off water, fuel and aid to Gaza is causing immense suffering. He and Netanyahu have known each other for 40 years. What will he be saying to Netanyahu in private, do you think?
2: I think the words in private are the most useful thing there because in public he should hug a lot of people and offer his condolences and say how appalled he is personally and we are uh, as a society with what has happened to uh, people in the Jewish settlements and and elsewhere. Um, Privately, I think he should echo some of the things that have been said here by uh, William Hague, for example, that uh, Israel may be walking into a trap at both politically and diplomatically, and also on the ground. I mean, on the ground, the fighting will be very difficult if it really is fighting in a in an urban area which is partly destroyed. But the prospect of Israel creating more victims than have been created by Hamas in Israel is one which could rebound very seriously across the world. And I mean not just in the Arab world or not just in the Muslim world, but elsewhere too, making it very, very difficult for the United States to Offer any kind of blank check. So Biden has is obviously as vice president and in his years in uh, in the Senate, he's got a lot of experience here, and he has got a lot of favors that he can call on, and he has got uh, you know the big stick that America is the biggest supplier of arms and and so on. Uh, Politically, of course, this is going to be very difficult for Netanyahu because I mean it is it is quite clear that when we look beyond the the immediate emergency, Netanyahu's conduct over the past year or two has not been helpful to anybody in the Middle East, including, unfortunately, the people of Israel.
0: Grant Shapps, the Defence Secretary, has been ringing around leaders in the region trying to persuade them not to escalate the conflict. And he's spoken of Britain's key role as he sees it in deterrence. How much credibility does Britain have in the region? Are we in any sense a player?
2: We're a player in one sense. I mean, we do have some uh, military capacity, but I'll get onto that in a moment. But we're also a player in the sense that, you know, the King of Jordan is uh, very pro-British. The people from the leadership of the United Arab Emirates and other countries have often been educated in Britain, and many of them like this country very much. However, we do appear very much like the mouse that roars. I mean, Grant Shapps now currently, I think his his fifth job is is defence secretary. He is completely unfit for that post. The idea that we are simultaneously cutting back the British army to 72,000 people, which was last seen at the end of the war of Spanish succession in 1715, and then we are, we're suggesting that we're somehow a significant power. Uh, we're not anymore, really. And so we can be part of a, a cheerleading group for uh, perhaps some of the things that are going to happen it, diplomatically, but we're not. Uh, and we have some very competent diplomats who have access to the highest uh, echelons of the Israeli government and elsewhere. But we're not really, uh, you know, we're not really a big player anymore in the Middle East. And we delude ourselves if we think, if we, think we are.
0: Ryan, there were protests in cities around the Middle East yesterday night after it was assumed that an Israeli strike had hit the hospital in Gaza. Hezbollah is already skirmishing with Israel on the Lebanese border. But how keen are governments in the Middle East to get involved in this?
3: I think not keen at all. But, you know, that doesn't mean that it won't happen. Uh, Wars, especially fast moving conflicts like this with an information space that is, frankly out of control toxic and very very difficult to understand in real time amplifies the risk of miscalculation and i think that what we're seeing right now is you know protests that are sparked by social media videos many of which are unverified claims that are unverified and so on and so uh, you know i fear that this is one of those watershed moments it was you know ukraine and and the the war with russia has also been uh, a testing ground for this but it's sort of a choose your own reality information space where people are now able to just sort of pick what they want to believe and then act upon it. And then governments are responding in real time to those events, those protests that are sparked by things that may or may not be true. So you you have, you know, governments that are trying to walk a fine line diplomatically, but then as they're meeting, you know, the events are changing on the ground based on what's happening on, you know, Elon Musk's, you know, Twitter zombie that is basically broken as a vector for reliable information. And this is the kind of thing where I think, again, you know, anytime you look at the history of warfare, miscalculation is a central part of things going wrong. And and that's what I'm most worried about is people misreading the environment or the events based on false information, which I think is more dangerous than it's been in, in modern history.
0: Is public feeling in the US squarely behind Israel? Because traditionally it has been.
3: Yeah, I mean, Israel has been a longstanding U.S. ally, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, regardless of uh, you know political events. That being said, you know, there's been a splintering um, uh, over events in Israel and in Gaza, with you know some elements of the far left much more prone to acting as apologists for Hamas, some elements of the far right acting as though you know Palestinian lives do not matter at all. And, you know, I think the consensus that exists in U.S. foreign policy is that this is something where the U.S. has a long term strategic goal that backs Israel. And I think, you know, Biden is squarely within that remit. So regardless of what the political fallout is from, you know, sort of the, the next 12 months heading into the 2024 election, I don't think that a major geopolitical alignment uh realignment will happen, and I do think that you know Biden would probably put more emphasis on civilian protection than, than Trump would if he was president at this moment. But I think there's a significant consensus in the center of American politics that U.S. backing for Israel is a long-term core strategic goal of the of the country.
0: Rachel, we've been talking about the information war and disinformation. I've lost count of the number of people I've seen casting shade on the BBC's coverage of the war, and that is on both sides. I don't remember a war where the narrative has been so constantly contested in real time. Does this feel like a dangerous place to be in?
1: It, it does. A couple of caveats on that um, – I am not unbiased in this. I have family currently in Israel. I also think that the job that uh, foreign correspondents, particularly war correspondents, are doing is incredibly difficult, putting their own safety at risk to be in areas of high conflict and being exposed to the most horrific scenes and then trying to report on that in an impartial way. And I, I don't think we should underestimate the challenge there. In the last 24 hours, I have been quite disturbed by how the BBC and other news organisations chose to report on the strike on the hospital. And it's worth saying now we still don't know exactly what happened. It's possible we will never know what happened. But the information that's come in today uh, has been more leaning in the direction of it being a, a misfired Hamas rocket rather than an Israeli strike. The BBC and other media organisations put out a push notification uh, in, in immediately in, in real time that quoted the Hamas version of events, which was that it was an Israeli strike. And I think I watched that unfold on social media, and that has the potential to, I think, do a lot of damage because... It suits some people's narrative. It's categorically in opposition to other people's narrative who will then find it harder to trust information that comes from those news outlets. It escalates the tone of the discussion, as it were, as if it wasn't heightened enough. And it's very difficult when a claim like that has been made to then go back in in subsequent days and say, actually, the the evidence is now pointing towards something else. So I would hope that that particular experience, perhaps there are editors at those news organisations who look at how they reported on that news and and might make different decisions next time around, because I, I do worry that it has real consequences.
0: Is there an organisation you do trust to cover it fully and fairly? Or does this feel like, you know, a just morass of potential misinformation and disinformation?
1: I would second what... Brian has said in, in that I think the worst place to be following the news on this is social media platforms, particularly Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now. And I have seen a number of videos purporting to be one thing uh, posted by both sides that turn out to be old footage of something completely different. And the clarification gets far, far less attention than the initial post. I, As I said, I, I, I think... Foreign correspondents are doing an incredibly difficult job. And I think the coverage from the main outlets, the BBC, Sky, has been. They've been doing their best in an incredibly challenging situation. I think maybe scaling back on news consumption and reading a range of sources and trying to stick to the main ones rather than the endless doom scrolling on Twitter that we've all been very familiar with is is probably a a better and more productive way to consume news about this. But it's, it's incredibly difficult. And I say that after seven days of doom scrolling on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I remember feeling the same way during COVID, though obviously a very different issue. Gavin, you're chairing a Media Society event on Thursday on the coverage. What is most concerning you about what's going on here?
2: I suppose what's most concerning me are the things that both both Rachel and Brian have touched on, but I view it in a slightly different way. I mean, I started my career in Belfast and uh, there were some people who said, you know, it's almost as if there are Protestant facts and Catholic facts or unionist facts and nationalist facts because people are different versions. But the big difference was that everything was much slower because there wasn't the kind of live coverage that we have now and the constant attempts at hot takes and what's really going on and why can't you tell us and all that sort of thing. So there's pressure both on the sources and pressure on the journalists, not just the fact that they might actually be killed doing their job. The obvious questions are, how do we get the facts out? But how do we share the facts while giving people two different versions, very, very different versions of what went wrong, when one of them is clearly wrong, but we still don't know exactly which one it is. And as Rachel said, you know, eighty percent it looks like it looks like it was a Hamas misfired rocket. But it was didn't particularly look like that this morning. So it's it's very these issues are very, very difficult for journalists. How do we know that the facts are really facts? And I'm I'm leaving out um the doom scrolling on on basically discredited uh, social media platforms, just even talking to people, what they see and what they have held, what, what has happened to them, and also what Israeli sources have said coming from the Israeli military. And when, when some journalists quote the Israeli military, there will be some viewers and listeners who will immediately say that's suspect. So it is a very, very difficult f- for our colleagues. And actually, I feel quite sorry for them. And I also wonder, what do we mean by balance anymore? I mean, how do you balance somebody who's telling the truth with somebody who is clearly telling the lie? Telling a lie, but we don't know which one it is. So, uh, those are the the basic issues. And the one other one is that. Journalism in the United Kingdom and elsewhere seems at times like a very big beast, but it also seems at times that we've got a very small brain because there's still a war going on in Ukraine and everybody is looking at the Middle East while that is happening. And simply resources mean, I suspect, if this goes on for a long time, we'll be undercovering what's going on in Ukraine, which I think would be unfortunate.
0: Ryan, how does all this play into what you could call the new Cold War with relations between the West and Russia and China so bad? How will it affect that dynamic?
3: Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's very difficult to know over the long term, but I would say that the Russian and Chinese governments want anything that sort of weakens or splinters the West. So every single opportunity that they have to drive divides uh, in, in Western political camps, they will exploit. And I think that's the prism through which they see a lot of global events. So, you know, I think there will be attempts to try to find wedge issues between how the US responds to this versus the EU versus individual EU countries, so there's not unity um, within the EU and so on, in an attempt to try to create the, you know, the sort of appearance of disarray or disunity. You know, I, I think there's a lot that's happening very, very quickly. I mean, you know, Joe Biden is is deciding how to behave day to day because the events are shifting day to day. Obviously the big picture is still backing Israel, but the degree to which the behind closed doors um, conversations are pushing more for, you know, humanitarian aid being let in and other things like that. Those are all unfolding in real time. So, I think these, you know, these these two major conflicts—the Ukraine and uh, Israel-Gaza conflicts—are ones that are going to rejigger a lot around 21st-century politics in ways that will probably solidify relations between Western powers that understand that they need to work together. Um, and the sort of authoritarian axis and with, with China and Russia, with Russia as the junior partner uh, over the long tall haul, it's simply because Russia's economy is 10 times smaller than China's. Um, and I think that's the sort of medium term outlook that I see in global affairs over the next sort of 20 to 30 years.
0: Talking about aid, trucks full of aid are queuing up at the Rafah crossing between Egypt and Gaza, but Egypt won't open the crossing and let that aid in. At first, that seems counterintuitive for a country that's, you know, clearly supports the Palestinian cause. Why, why is that happening?
3: Yeah, I think the Egyptians are very worried about destabilization. I think that many Palestinian groups are worried about what happens if people leave. Um, I think there are also concerns about, uh, on the Israeli side, about weapons coming in. I mean, it's obviously a very delicate issue. I, I think the Americans are going to make progress in pushing for this. And I think that, I suspect that one of the things that will come out of these summits is a much more detailed plan for humanitarian corridors but you know i don't know there's th- these things are are changing so rapidly by the time this airs it's pr- probably going to be quite different but you know i think this is something that is a priority for the american government and uh, and i and i do think there are ways to ensure that at least some of the avoidable catastrophes are avoided and and that is going to be the focus of a lot of western diplomats over the coming days
0: Now let's have a question from one of our Patreon backers in, but your emails this week. Claire Nurk and apologies if I've mispronounced your surname asks. Following the deepfake of Keir Starmer, what do you think are the greatest risks in terms of AI and deepfakes in the upcoming elections on both sides of the Atlantic? Now that deepfake, I think, uh, purported to show Keir Starmer shouting at one of his staff, and it was fairly quickly debunked, but it was also pretty pretty convincing. Rachel. Are you worried about this?
1: I'm very worried about it, and I'm particularly worried about it having listened to one of Brian's podcasts on it a couple of years ago. Didn't you get a deep fake of of, of of yourself or turn yourself into a deep fake? Um, and it was it was it was really quite disturbing. The the thing with this is that we're getting to the point where it is going to be virtually impossible to debunk very, very sophisticated high-tech. Deep fakes, and we're just talking about misinformation and the the media cycle and how you get two different sets of reality, and you can kind of pick your own. And I think the thing that worries me is less a specific example. I think we can all think of all kinds of existential horrific nightmare scenarios. But the idea that you will have a video, and one side will say this is a deep fake, and the other side will say no this is real we won't have the tools to be able to work out who's telling the truth and who's lying certainly not as quickly as we need to for the for the discourse before it all moves on and you, the sense of reality and truth will further splinter and if you imagine that happening again and again and again you will have people living in completely different realities that have a set of facts and and to just not be able to even have a conversation with their opponents because they're they're in different worlds there and I also think on the sort of the flip side of it it would be the, the existence of deep fake technology like this would make it very easy if a politician gets caught doing something that they have done but they shouldn't be to just go it's a deep fake and to bluff it out knowing that the debate will get so frenzied that the truth will will never come out so yes yes I'm very worried about it
0: yeah I worry particularly that people even if they if it's show even if it's shown to be a a fake and, you know, we have uh, we have the people who are the subject of the deep fake saying that it's a fake, then there will just be a kind of narrative in people's heads that go, yeah, but it's the kind of thing that that person would say, isn't it? And it will kind of exist in their mind and it will become part of their perception of that person and the damage will have been done, even if it's successfully debunked. So, you know, even all the efforts to verify that media organizations are trying to do and to call out um, call out deep fakes as as fast as possible, they could still fail because people just don't want to know what the truth is really.
1: And also by verifying it, you draw attention to it, you get that image in more people's minds, but yeah. people who might not necessarily have, have seen it. And the more you talk about, is this video real or fake, the more likely it is that people will be exposed to it. But at the same time, you don't want to ignore it and leave something out there that is has been invented on a computer.
0: Brian, are you even more worried than you were a few years ago?
3: Yeah, but in, in, in slightly different ways. I mean, I think when I wrote about deep fakes and and when I've uh, covered them on my podcast, it was sort of the big new thing. And I think the lesson in the intervening few years is actually that shallow fakes, which are very crudely edited, very stupidly done fake videos and, and photos are good enough. The deep fakes are a very serious problem, but I think it doesn't take that much actually to fool people. And that's the thing that I worry about. It's sort of like how, you know, in the US political s- system there was a lot of worries about uh, Russian interference around elections. And that was obviously a very worthwhile worry. I mean, it was a serious problem. But then it turned out that a lot of homegrown actors were actually pumping this stuff in ways that were even more consequential through the right-wing media networks related to Fox News and Newsmax and so on, and then on social media. So it's it's sort of the the most new form of disinformation. But you know we're going to be just absolutely flooded with it in a variety of ways and it's not just going to be ai and deep fakes i also think the other two points that i just make quickly one is that you know elon musk has started this thing of monetization on uh, twitter And this basically just rewards clicks. So you have an amplification of people who have absolutely no skin in the game, but understand that if they get video views and clicks, they will make money. So there's now a very strong incentive for these bad actors online to just come up with innovative ways around elections and so on to generate content that will lead to more eyeballs seeing it. And finally, I think you know there's something that's happening now with video and audio, which is what happened when Photoshop became widespread, you know, a couple of decades ago, where it's like you just stop trusting images necessarily. You could just say, "Oh, it's photoshopped." We used to be able to then say, "Okay, but like we heard a recording or we watched a video." I suspect that what's just going to happen is at some point we're all just going to be skeptical of everything we see and hear, which is precisely what um, you know authoritarian governments try to do with their populations to make them more persuadable and it's there's this line that peter pomerantsev a a disinformation expert has where he says the title of his book is nothing is true and everything is possible and i think we're heading towards that world where if we all think nothing is true and everything is possible then that choose your own reality doesn't require much sway it just becomes the default and we sort ourselves into camps based on our own set of facts which is the breakdown of democracy unfortunately so there's my dose of optimism for today
0: Tusk is likely to become the next Prime Minister of Poland. And as longtime fans of the Tusker on this podcast, we're very happy about that. The Law and Justice Party has installed crony judges, taken over the media, and is now talking about trying to rerun the election. But the US president who tried to cling to power after he was kicked out in 2020 now has a real chance of running again and winning. That's despite the many felony indictments hanging over him. What would a Trump rerun mean for Europe, Ukraine, and indeed the Middle East. Brian, you argue that America needs to take the threat of a Trump comeback much more seriously. Are Democrats burying their heads in the sand?
3: I think that pretty much every Democrat is aware this is a serious risk. Uh, I mean, you just look at the polls and the polls show either Trump ahead or very, very close with Biden. And so, you know, lots can change. It's It's a little over a year until the election. But at the moment, you know, it's looking like a toss up. And the point of view that I have is that this would be, I think, a watershed moment in the history of the modern world, as well as, um, you know, a serious death spiral for American democracy that is a realistic prospect. So it has to be taken really, really seriously. My worry is less with the Democrats themselves. It's more with how um, Trump is being portrayed in the media. And I wrote a, a piece a couple weeks ago, a week ago, that uh, coined this term called the banality of crazy. And it's sort of this notion that Trump's behavior has become so outlandish, but so routine that it no longer registers. And, you know, after I wrote this piece criticizing the New York Times for, and other, you know, American outlets for not covering some of Trump's rhetoric in which he, you know, effectively, he called to execute America's top general. He called to shoot uh, shoplifters on the spot without a trial, right, for minor crimes to execute them. None of this got coverage. And yet, you know, Joe Biden's dog biting a secret service agent had like hundreds of articles written about it in the U.S. press. And so after I you know, wrote this criticism and it took off online and, and people started to write about it in other mainstream outlets, uh, the New York Times did cover this on page 14. Right. They, they, they wrote about the, the sort of incitement to violence. And this is the thing that I think is really dangerous, is that we have an asymmetry. where, like, yes, Joe Biden is old, like he absolutely is old. Trump is three years younger than him, but is also facing 91 felony indictments, was found liable for sexual abuse, incited an insurrection to overturn democracy, has been found recently to have committed mass fraud for self enrichment, right? Like these are not parallel things, they're, they're not equivalent. And so to my mind, you have, you know, a really big obligation on the part of the media to explain the magnitude of the story, not just the novelty. And I, I, I fear that a lot of the press in America has focused on novelty, which is why Joe Biden's dog, you know, becomes a, a story. And it's, it's particularly ironic because the whole aspect of media criticism around this is that's saying that, you know, we don't cover dog bites man, we cover man bites dog stories. And yet the story about Biden was literally a dog bites man story. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a complete mess. And the stuff Trump is saying on truth social, take my word for it. Don't, You know, don't subject yourself to this, but the stuff he's saying on his own social media site is so much crazier than what he said as president. Uh, It's so much more extreme. He's amplifying QAnon constantly, you know, and this is not getting covered. Whereas in 2017, when he said something like mildly weird, the BBC would call me to ask me about what had happened in US politics. This just doesn't happen anymore. It's just become baked in as part of the Trump equation.
0: What do we know about what he wants to do with a second term? Because his first term was often pretty chaotic. I mean, that was partly COVID, but his, his people have reportedly been making much more detailed preparations this time. How easy will it be for them to push through the kind of changes that they want?
3: Yeah, so there's sort of two parallel stories here. On the one hand, Trump has no platform, right? Like he, he, he was literally asked in a softball interview by Sean Hannity, one of his big acolytes on, on Fox News, like, what would you do? And Trump didn't answer the question. He went on this long rant about how the DOJ, the Department of Justice, is out to get him and how awful Joe Biden is and so on. And Hannity just sort of moved on. And famously, in the 2020 election, normally the Republican National uh, Committee will adopt a platform. And they didn't for the first time ever. They just basically said, whatever Trump wants to do is what our platform is, Um, which is sort of a perfect encapsulation of the the personalization of, of the Republican Party around Trump. On the other hand, there is a series of people in the sort of pro-Trump intelligentsia, which is making preparations to dismantle what they call the deep state, but what we call the government. And the, uh, the, the, the plans for this are quite scary. I mean, they're invoking arcane rules in which they would basically be able to amass executive power. There are plans on what to do in terms of what would happen if there was a contested election. This is particularly worrying if someone like Jim Jordan were to become Speaker of the House because he was one of the main people who tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election through Congress. So if he's the speaker, he could run the show, you know, for this. So there's a lot of stuff under the surface that's really dangerous for US democracy. On the global stage, my biggest worry is, you know, it's it's a huge risk, is Trump could withdraw from NATO. And he talked about doing this in his first term, but was constrained by A, moderates in his party and B, the threat of not getting reelected. The threat of not getting reelected is gone in term two, the moderates in his party do not exist. So you know what I really worry about is is Trump 2.0, I think would be Trump unleashed and it would be much more dangerous for the world. You think about what would happen in Ukraine, I mean, I think American aid would end. That's I think the answer. I think it would basically, uh, he would stop authorizing it. So you know, a lot of really dangerous stuff and it's depressing, it's, it's, it's monotonous because it's so relentless, but it has to be a major focus of geopolitics because I think it is the greatest risk to world security in a very long time.
0: Do we know how he'd react to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Because he's not the biggest fan of China or hasn't been in the past, although obviously his allegiances are flexible, but would he get involved?
3: It's very difficult to say. What I I will say is that the one thing that Trump has been consistent on in his entire time in public life, and this goes back to the 1980s, is basically transactional bilateralism and a skepticism of international engagement to back other countries that don't do anything for us, as he would put it, right? His viewpoint is that the only reason that the U.S. should do something is if it's in its own self-interest. Now, a lot of people would say backing Taiwan is in the geopolitical strategy, of uh, American foreign policy. Trump is very short term, very transactional. And I think the biggest concern is the fact that we have to debate this is what would increase the risk of a Chinese invasion, because there'd be doubt, right? And that miscalculation is so important. The the first Gulf War in Iraq was basically Saddam Hussein thinking that the US wouldn't react and he miscalculated. So if China does this and commits, um, we're, we're in big trouble. And Biden has sent very clear signals on this front. So. You know, I, I just think that there are so many unknowns that are playing with extremely dangerous risks um, that it truly is, in my view, the biggest risk that we faced in a long time.
0: Rachel, is Europe taking the prospect of a Trump comeback seriously?
1: I think it depends. What do you mean by take seriously? I think there is certainly real concern among European leaders that this is a realistic prospect in a way that there wasn't in 2016 when he was a joke candidate and uh, foreign ministries across Europe weren't really taking that seriously. I think one of the things that we've all learned about Trump over the last decade is uh, there's always a possibility and you should be prepared for it. But okay, you think it might happen. What does that mean? What does preparing for that mean in practice? Brian just talked about the possibility of the US withdrawing from NATO. What does that look like? There's there's no real way that the remaining Members of of NATO could overnight uh, make up the shortfall in U.S. funding, U.S. influence, U.S. power. Uh, what would it look like in terms of who would lead the alliance? There's there's no sort of clear answers there. Kind of what would it mean for Ukraine to have Europe, and which has been very united against Putin's Russia, suddenly okay, Trump pulls. U.S. aid from, from Ukraine and perhaps says he's going to broker a deal between between Putin and Ukraine. That puts Europe in an incredibly awkward position and it's difficult to see a, a good option for, for how European leaders would react to that. And that's assuming that European leaders can agree with each other on what their reaction would be. I think we're already dealing with the consequences of U.S. foreign policy during the first Trump term, which was uh, pulling away from from global institutions and, and global influence, and um, without getting too much into what's behind Putin's invasion of, of, of Russia, it's widely accepted that the U.S. stepping back from from global engagement during the the Trump years was a factor in emboldening Putin. So, I think I think the answer to that question is Europe is aware that it's a possibility but there's a limit so what you can do to prepare for it
0: and it's pretty blindsided at the moment by events let's face it in the last few years um the british conservatives still have quite strong links to the republicans boris johnson and liz truss have both visited them recently but the labor party doesn't do we have a sense of what keir starmer's foreign policy priorities are i mean you know events events but do do we know how he how he'd handle this this scenario
1: not really. I mean, up until the last couple of weeks, we didn't have a sense of Labour's policy on anything, foreign or, or domestic. Uh, and then we had we had Labour Party conference. And obviously, the, the focus was very much on, on the Middle East there. I think if you look at what David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, has been saying, his main thrust of, of foreign policy under Labour is very much to do with closer alignment and a closer relationship with Europe not rejoining the EU, but of building, rebuilding relationships on that front. But I think Labour would struggle with the Trump presidency, as uh, all governments would and particularly all governments on on the left. One thing that I think is sort of worth pointing out when you look at the conservative links to Trump. It's very overdone, I think, to compare Boris Johnson to, to, to Donald Trump. And I, th- I think there are orders of magnitude apart. But one of the things that uh, the Conservative Party and perhaps we don't know British politics learned during the, the, the Boris Johnson years was that you can try the Trump playbook and you can you can try to just flat out lie and deny things and sometimes you will actually get away with it and sometimes you can break the accepted norms of politics in your country whether that's to do with who pays for what or how you go about with accountability and issues of transparency. And for a very long time, it it will work. Now, in the end for Boris Johnson, it it didn't work. But I think I do worry that some in British politics have learnt the wrong lessons uh, from, from the Trump presidency. And that is quite worrying. Gavin...
0: Starmer talked last week in his speech at the conference about an age of uncertainty, which is a phrase that's used a lot now. What would a Europe without the US on our side and a Ukraine potentially defeated by Russia feel like?
2: It might feel like the 1930s, actually, uh, with a uh, a United States which was in some kind of uh, isolation, didn't want to get involved and so on. There are some who think that a Trump second presidency would mean the end of American democracy, at least as we have come to know it. And it would be very, very difficult to handle. I mean, he is, after all, one of the things that's still astounding, and it picks up both Brian and Rachel's point, is that he is in a sense, the world's number one shallow fake. I mean, we know he's a fake successful businessman. We know how much he inherited. We know he's sort of a fake traditional Republican or conservative because he's so radical. And yet he still has a constituency among about half of American voters. So it will be very, very difficult to navigate a second Trump presidency because perhaps he doesn't even know, even uh, little Brian says there's some planning going on, he doesn't know what he might actually do from day to day. I, I should say that I remember an um, American diplomat saying to me when uh, he was reflecting on how Clinton and John Major didn't get on very well years ago. And he said uh, to me, But you see, in general, the British uh, prime minister and the American president are always fated to get along. And that has been the story since 1945, or actually before that, since the Second World War. I'm not sure that would be true now. Starmer may very well, if he becomes prime minister and Trump becomes president of the United States, think that he has got some access uh, access to and uh, ability to shift Donald Trump. But I don't think that's likely, frankly.
0: It would be the end of any, even any pretense of the special relationship.
2: Well, I never believe there is the special relationship anyway. I think America's got a special relationship with so many countries, including Israel and Japan and, and Mexico and so on. So the special relationship is a, is a British fantasy, which again, an American diplomat once said to me, we always mention that in order to tickle the belly of the Brits. So our belly has been tickled, but I don't think oh. Trump is <sighs> a tickler, at least not of political bellies. There may be other ones.
0: Brian, Joe Biden's candidacy looks a given. Robert F. Kennedy said last week he'd run as an independent. What is his platform apart from quite a lot of vaccine skepticism?
3: Well, you know, he, he has a platform on, on the sort of standard things that, you know, presidential candidates have a platform on housing and education, all that type of stuff. What voters see him as, as is the sort of anti-vax conspiracist, and interestingly, some of his platform is actually very, very right-wing. So uh, he backs a national abortion ban, uh, for example, after a certain period. And these aspects of his candidacy are much more aligned with traditional Republican voters. It's unclear, I think, still what would happen if there was a three-party uh, or three-person race. The, the conventional wisdom often is, uh, you know, especially on the left, is well, these would be spoiler candidates and they would end up increasing the likelihood that Trump could win in some places that he normally wouldn't if it was a head-to-head Biden-Trump matchup. With RFK, I don't know. I mean, you know, he's he such a fringe candidate where he really does not pull well among the Democrats who are you know, very, very <laughs> pro-science for the most part as a party that I did see one preliminary poll yesterday that showed Biden with a nine point lead over Trump when RFK was put in the mix and RFK was mostly pulling from Trump. Whether that's an outlier, whether that's going to be indicative, I don't know. I think most voters know very little about him, to be honest, I think that he's not a household name other than the fact that he's a Kennedy, um, which they know they know that, but I don't think they know much about his policies, his platforms, et cetera. And the more that this becomes clear, some of this conspiracist stuff that he talks about, I think it's more, the more it's going to be a turnoff to um, traditional Democratic voters. There's been a splintering on this, right, in the last sort of seven, eight years, because because of the way that Trump responded to the pandemic, Democrats became much more pro-vaccine, and, and Republicans became much more anti-vaccine, and in a way that just didn't happen in Europe, uh, not nearly to the degree. Um, so much so, by the way, that the, the demographics of deaths in the U.S. are highly tied to partisanship. Uh, a lot more Republicans died because they basically didn't in, in, the, in the sort of delta wave beyond after the vaccination became a um, you know a possibility for most people because they just simply didn't take it and so those voters I think are more likely to be RFK's uh, bastion but how much he gets I don't know I mean most of the time in the U S you you only have five percent for a third party there's exceptions like in the early 1990s with Ross Perot but um, most of the time it's uh, it's it's candidates that take away five, seven percent. And then you sort of shake out based on who who they're pulling away from. And we still don't know who that will be.
0: We've reached the end of the show. So what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Rachel,
1: I've had a really depressing week, as I think many of us have. And so my under-the-radar story is that the Guinness World Record for the cat with the loudest purr has been broken by a 14-year-old cat from Cambridgeshire called Bella, uh, who had an official world record attempt, uh, and I've seen the video, if if you're interested in the video, it's mostly an advert for Whiskers Cat Food, but I still think it's worth watching anyway, where the official Guinness World Record adjudicator turns up and with a decibel reader, whatever you call the sound things, uh, measures the the volume of Bella's per 54.6 decibels, equivalent to the volume of a boiling kettle. Um, and just well done, Bella.
0: Well, I think we all needed that, frankly, <laughs> after, after Middle East war and Trump. So thank you. <laughs> My under the radar is that nitrous oxide is being banned from November. So if you're taking it, you should stop taking it. And especially you should stop taking it because you get a couple of years in jail if you take it. And if you deal it, you get up to 14 years in jail, which given that the uh, British British prisons are already overcrowding uh, overcrowded and uh, in fact they're having to put up pop-up tents in jail yards and try and get rid of prisoners early who are violent and really shouldn't be released it is remarkable to think that there will be space for all these nitrous oxide offenders but hey priorities
1: especially because the main reason the the justification for it is not that it's particularly bad for you because it isn't really Mm. um, but litter they're, they're, yeah. they're concerned about litter. And, uh, yeah, so 14
0: that... years for contributing to litter. It, it hits home, doesn't it? But then, you know, once smoking is banned, what, what are we going to have left, really? There's not There's not really... Anyway, Gavin, Gavin. this podcast. Yes. <laughs> Gavin, what have you got for us?
2: Oh, I've got a absolutely breaking news that a reptile rescue and rehoming centre in Kent has reported a large influx of animals due to the cost of living, living crisis. People who have... Reptiles are finding they're too expensive to keep and they're taking their reptiles along to the reptile, National Centre for Reptile Welfare in Tunbridge, Kent. So there sounds to me like a place to put your charity money and keep the lizards safe.
1: Can we adopt some of these abandoned, what, crocodiles, if you want to? <laughs>
2: I think you could adopt tortoises. a, yeah, yeah I, mean, I think probably they would want to. They're trying to raise £100,000 to expand their facilities. Um, so if you've got a snake, a lizard or a tortoise, or you want to have a snake, a lizard or a tortoise, that's the place to go. Tunbridge in Kent.
0: You know, at the moment, I don't feel like owning a snake is my priority. <laughs> Plus, I'm not sure that it would get on with our cat at all. How, how
1: loud is your cat's purr out of interest?
0: It depends <laughs> if he's in a good mood. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it can be almost non-existent occasionally, but it can also be quite loud. But I, I don't think that's the main problem, to be honest. I think it's more that she's a she's a hunter and she'd end up being killed by the snake because um, she's quite a small cat. Anyway, we need to get, get serious. Brian, what have you got for us?
3: I have a slightly different one. I, one of the things I've been looking like Rachel has for sort of something uplifting uh, in the news. and And the way I've chosen to come about this is to think, What the news doesn't cover is really positive long-term trends that we lose sight of because the news focuses on headlines of events and so one of the things i i've been looking at is uh extreme poverty in the world and in 1975 half of the world population lived in extreme poverty today that number is eight percent and i think we lose sight of some of these really big uh sort of trends that really do transform lots of people's lives uh when we're doom scrolling through lots of horrific stuff that we can do stuff about. But, you know, it doesn't make a good headline to say extreme poverty reduced by 0.1% today. Uh, you know, but it is, it is the big news story, I think, that we're missing.
0: Thank you, Brian. And that's the show. Thanks to Gavin.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Rachel. Thank you. And Brian. Thank you. Brian's new book, Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters, is out in the UK on 1st of February, 2024. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time.
2: Hello and welcome aboard to John Salisbury, Caroline Patterson and Great North Road.
1: Huge thanks for your support and hello from me to Kelly Webb-Davies, James and
0: Alan Watt. And a salute from me to these lovely people who are coming back after their support lapsed. Welcome home. Come on in and close the door to Ryan Leahy, Charlotte Mannion and Kristin Pearson. We'll see you next time.
2: Oh God, What Now? was presented by Ros Taylor with Gavin Esler and Rachel Cunliffe. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.
0: Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, shocking news. A major railway signalling error has happened, and it wasn't in the UK. A French train bound for the European Parliament in Strasbourg was accidentally diverted to Disneyland Paris, leaving hundreds of MEPs frozen in shock. Frozen, guys. Okay, right. Today, I'm going to ask the panel when they've ended up in a destination that they weren't expecting and what happened. Rachel, your ex slash Twitter whatever bio describes you as at one time the only ancient Greek teacher in South Korea. Was this a deliberate career move or did you just accidentally (laughs) end up in South Korea?
1: No, that one was deliberate. I was... uh over there with a school being a boarding house mistress assistant whatever you want to call it uh, and helping to teach Latin this was a South Korean school that wanted to do the proper English curriculum so I said oh if you're if you're learning Latin maybe you should learn ancient Greek as well and they said we don't have anyone here who can teach ancient Greek uh, so I I stepped in but I was meant to be there my story for this segment was going to be something that happened to me while I was in South Korea which was, my friend and I were trying to get from Seoul, South Korea, to Non Penh in Cambodia. And we uh, had a very complicated journey on a Chinese airline that I will not name or recommend. And we ended up getting on a plane at Beijing that said it was going to Non Penh. Uh, about a four-hour flight. And one hour into this flight, we got an announcement in first in Chinese and then in, in, in very broken English, informing us that we were...
0: That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning and some merchandise. Thanks for listening. See you next week.